Well, as we begin this morning, I thought I'd pull out one of my favorite devices that I think is one of the coolest devices that they've made so far, at least for me. It's called a Microsoft Surface Pro. Have any of you used a Microsoft Surface Pro yet? Okay. I mean, this thing is incredible. It looks like a tablet, right? Just like a normal tablet or an oversized phone, but it's not just an oversized phone or a tablet. It's actually basically an entire computer in this little thing right here. And you kind of set it up, you know, it's got its little leg and you can set it down, you carry it with you wherever you go. And then if you want to have a full keyboard, because I don't know about you, but like typing on a screen like, like this, like on a screen or on a phone isn't so easy, but you, with this you can snap it and it's got a whole keyboard on it and it's got a whole mouse and it's like incredible. And you know what? I'm going to tell you a story that's obviously not true. Last night, in a dream, someone came to me. I don't know who it was, but I was taught how to make a Microsoft Surface Pro. I know how to make every part of a Microsoft Surface Pro. Is that not incredible? I mean, the dream of all dreams, right? It was a long one. It was a long one, but I got all the down. I, I know all the parts. I know all the, how to make all the processors. I know all the wires. And you know what? Apparently, if you get one of these things on sale, you can buy one if you get the special deal and the right shake and the right day. You can get one of these for 600 bucks. So I now, because I know how to make a Microsoft Surface Pro, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make them and I'm going to sell them. But, you know, I thought, okay, well, how many do I have to make a week in order to be able to make money? Well, if I sold one of these a week, that would be $600. And if I made $600 profit, that means I will make $31,000 a year at $600 a week. So it doesn't feel like a lot. Um, so, you know, I've also got to get all the materials and stuff, so I'm probably going to need to, like, sell more than one a week, and I'm probably going to sell, need to you know, make and sell a couple a week. So, as you think about what would required, even if I somehow, you know, manna from heaven, I learned how to make one of these, how long would it take me by myself to make the screen alone for this thing? I mean, it'd be like, okay, well, I got to have the right equipment, and then, I've, and then I've got to personally make them. And then if I make one, okay, great, I've got a screen, and, and now Monday's over, right? And then what am I going to do? Make the processor and, and make it all itself and you know, wire the whole thing together? I mean, I, I couldn't even possibly, probably, if, even if I knew how to make the whole thing, I would not even be able to make enough of them to even pretend to survive. You say, so how is it possible that you're able to go and buy one of these for $600 and the company that makes it makes money? When I, who've been given the miraculous knowledge from heaven on how to make it, can't even figure out how even close to possibly make enough of these to make any profit. And of course, the magic of it all is called the economy of scale. It gets kind of complicated, but essentially you have a whole bunch of people that all they know how to do is make processors, and actually there's probably a whole bunch of people under that that all they knew how to do is like make a part of the processor, and there's people under that that all they know how to do is mine the copper, and there's people under that that all they know how to do is process the copper, and so on and so forth and so forth. There are so many hands that touch this. It is unbelievable. As a matter of fact, I was talking to a friend. I may have mentioned this before. He told me, he says, there is no one in the world that knows how to build a plane. 
Nobody. There are so many parts to a plane that nobody can understands how all the pieces work to be able to put an entire plane together. And so even as silly as impossible it is that I would be able to know how to put together one of these, even if I had such knowledge, I would never even be able to dream of making any money by building them myself. The economy of scale. And what's even more credible is the parts of these things come from all over the world, right? They come, come from China or Taiwan. Different parts are made different places, and they all come together. And somehow, for only $600, I can have one. And what this thing can do is incredible, right? It's an entire computer wrapped up into a tablet. And you say, what in the world does economy have to scale and have to do with Acts chapter 11? Well, as we go through, I think I'd like to show you what it does have to do. So if we'll look at Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, we're going to walk down that path this morning. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So now we're talking about, last week we talked about how when uh, Peter um, connected with Cornelius, and so the people uh, decided that they would accept the Gentiles. We're going to kind of continue this theme of Gentiles and accepting and whatnot, but we're kind of having a decent kind of shift, so we're not talking about Peter and Cornelius anymore. It's kind of shifted. So now those who scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so if you've been following me the, this whole series, we remember when Stephen was uh, stoned. Uh, there was all this persecution that went on, and so because of that, people left. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the words to no one except the Jews. So the Jews had already been kind of spread all over the world. So when the persecution happened in, uh, you know, where Jesus was from, Jerusalem area, they went and they spread out all over the world. But when they would go, where would they go? They would go to their Jewish communities because many of these towns, it wasn't that hard to find a Jewish community. It would be great to go and find people that spoke some of your own language, the one that you're most familiar with. Also, it would be great to be able to find people that had the same food. Right? When you travel, I don't know if Rob and Paula experienced this when they were in Israel, but one of the things you sometimes miss when you do a lot of traveling is there's some foods that you just you know, you can't get the same. I remember when I was uh, with the boys in uh, Sunrise, and there were a couple guys from Nigeria and they just really wanted plantains, and we couldn't find the plantains, and I think we eventually found them some. And I think plantains are kind of terrible myself, but you know that's what they had grown up eating, and they really liked them, and they really missed them. And you'd miss the food, but if you were able to go to a community where there were people that were also Jews, you'd have this, the same food, the same religion. Not, not probably not exactly the same because they had probably developed some, but it would be much more comforting. And they went there and they shared this good news to them, but only the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also. They also spoke to the Greeks. Some might even translate that Hellenist term in this particular case to be Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. So they, some men who were in Antioch, and Antioch was a really big city. It's probably the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world. The only cities that were bigger were Alexandria and Rome. And so there were probably a town of about 600,000, and there were probably 25,000 Jews. There was this large Jewish community. But when they went to this large Jewish community, for whatever reason, the people that went to Antioch didn't just talk to the Jews. They also talked to the Hellenists, the Greeks. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So it's kind of like we had like an individual story with Cornelius about how 
uh, someone that was Greek was saved. And now we're talking about it kind of at a grander scale. So we had this one example, and Peter, of course, received the vision, and he was told that we're supposed to allow the Gentiles in, and now we see it kind of expanding out, and more and more people are coming to Christ that are Gentiles. The report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So while we had some really good news in the last sermon about how the the Jews had accepted that these Gentiles were a part of the community, still you could imagine there was probably still some curiosity at least, right? Really? A whole group of Gentiles now are being saved. Really? We're going to have to kind of check this out. So they sent some kind of group or envoy, they sent Barnabas specifically, I don't know if he had anyone with them, and they wanted him to go check it out. You know, we knew and know from chapter 11, verses 1 through 18 that we talked about last week, that there was still some issues, and these issues don't seem to be completely resolved until Acts 15, with the Gentiles being come up equal footing with Jews before God. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He goes, and what does he see? It's good news. Good news. Things are going well. Seems to respond appropriately. A lot of good news going on. It's great to read the Bible, and sometimes we're kind of disappointed at the bad things that happen. It's always great to see when things go really well. And it seems like things are going quite well. The people in Antioch are witnessing to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are becoming saved. And it seems as Barnabas goes to check on them, he is happy about it and accepts them. For he was a good man, speaking of Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So Barnabas moved on. He travels on to go see Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So he brings Paul from Tarsus to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, Christians are called many different things in Acts. They're called saints, disciples, believers. They're called the church, brothers, Nazarenes. But Christians is the term that often has been the one that has been ascribed to us throughout the ages. And if I could have picked all the terms and acts that I would have liked to have been given for the history of humanity, I think Christians kind of worked out pretty well, right? We're little Christ. And saints is, of course, a great name, and disciples, and believers, and all of those are good. But I think the church being called Christians, I would be very excited about. And it's kind of a reminder to yourself that we are always supposed to be people that are examples of Christ. You know, it's easy to, you get these, we, we, you use the word kind of, kind of loosely, you know, we say, I don't, I don't know about loosely, but you just don't think about what it means all the time. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, so that means, yeah, like a little Christ all the time, right? And sometimes we don't think of it that way, but we should. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now prophets, mm, 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 mm. So this is the New Testament. Old Testament prophets is you know, pretty clear. They would come and they would speak for God, right? A lot of those prophets ended up in the, what they said ended up in the, in the Old Testament, in the Bible. You could think of the, many of the minor prophets, the major prophets. We have many books written about them, you know. 
One of them's named Joel, actually. One of the most confusing and hard to want, hardest to understand. And so you say, well, is it different in the New Testament? This is like a kind of a complicated thing that usually goes along with the spiritual gifts debate. How do prophets work in the New Testament? Does God still do this thing where he has someone who he, call, he talks to and he's a prophet and he's like, I want you and go talk and I want you to go talk to the church on my behalf in the same way he would have sent Jeremiah or someone to the king of Israel. Does that happen in the New Testament? I mean, it's, it's pretty debated or, or maybe the argument is we know it happens in the Old Testament. Does it happen in the early church? And does it still happen now? There, you might see it in almost three phases, really. Okay, we, we, all, we all kind of, you know, we agree that happens in the Old Testament. Does it happen in the other church? And does it exist now? So now these prophets came down from Jerusalem to Enoch. So what are these prophets? Are these prophets that are like telling the future? Or are they just like proclaiming God's word? And one of them named Agabus stood up in front and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. What does he do? He predicts the future. He says there's going to be a famine. What happens A.D. 41 to A.D. 54? There's famine. So I'd say the answer is this. We have prophets in the Old Testament that predict the future. We have prophets in the early church here in Acts that clearly are predicting the future, and the future comes true. And I will not solve the problem of whether we still have prophets predicting the future today that still comes true. I mean, we certainly have had a lot of ones that have said they have that it hasn't worked out. So it, 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 it's, I'm always a little gun-shy, right? I'm always a little gun-shy because we've had a lot of people that have tried to think they could predict the future and they haven't been able to. But I am confident that in this particular time during this early church, for sure, we have prophets that are predicting the future because these famines happened during this time period. They kind of happened in succession. As a matter of fact, if you get really nerdy into the history of Rome, a lot of people think part of why the economic downfall of Rome was partly because of the famines that they had. Because in, old, uh, in, in ancient times when you were like totally dependent on the weather and there was no irrigation and famines came, I mean, just the way that you were ultimately you know, crushing would be having your crops not grow. So having your crops fail, it would just, you know, it just crushes you. As a matter of fact, I heard one people say, well, the great thing about Rome was not that they won every battle, but when they lost, they always had more people to come and fight again. And that was because they had so much food. They were able to have so many children and be able to raise them and feed them and to be able to raise another army. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but certainly the Bible here seems to agree that Rome did have these famines and that would continue to weaken the Roman state. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So this guy makes his prophecy about this uh, famine that's going to happen, and they all decide to come together, they work together, and they're going to send food to Judea. You know, sometimes when things happen that don't affect us personally or don't affect anyone we've ever met personally, it can be pretty easy to just... Push it away, you know. Well, that's too bad that that happened to them. And we move on. You know, when a friend of ours dies or is in a terrible situation, we're distraught and, and it's horrible. And 
and whatnot. But man, if it happens across the world sometimes, sometimes we don't care. I'm not saying we always don't care. I mean, I think the church has done a really great job of trying to help people in other, other countries and sending missionaries. So it's not, I'm not saying we've never done anything right. I'm just saying it can be easy to slip into an idea where we don't think about people that we don't know personally. And that our only, our own, the only circle of care that we ever have is the people that we know. And we see here the church doesn't just care about people they've met directly, but all those who are believers. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so they sent this gift by Barnabas and Saul. And so you say to yourself, Joel, you've, you've read all the verses this morning. I still have no idea what the economy of scale has to do with anything that you just said. I like to explain it like this. You know, there's certain things that we here at Sunday Side can do at a small level with just how many of us we have. There's certain things that we can do that we can do really well. And there's certain things that we cannot do at all. If we wanted to send a missionary to China, pick a, pick a country, we want to send a missionary in China, would we be able to afford to support a missionary going to China? No, we wouldn't be able to. So does that mean every church in the whole world that Sunnyside's size should have nothing to do with sending missionaries to China. Now, the Baptists figured out a long time ago that even though we didn't want a, a pope telling us what to do, even though we didn't want a hierarchy as a top-down system, we did have to figure out a long time ago that there were things that we couldn't do isolated. Things that we couldn't do on our own. I think like church camp. Could we start a church camp like Sunnyside? We could never start a church camp. We, we, we wouldn't even have the volunteers to run a church camp. Does that mean we should never be a part of a church camp? We Baptists figured out that we had to come together to do big things, things that you can't do when you just stay in your own individual churches. This is why Baptists form denominations in the first place. This is why we have an American Baptist or a Southern Baptist or a different denomination. Because we realized that we had to come together because we were going to fail at certain very important things, one of them being missions, if we did not come together and work many churches together for one cause. You know, sometimes people will say, well, what's the point of a denomination? You know, why do you even need one? You know, we don't need any we don't need any other churches to have our church. We don't need to be a Baptist church to have church. We don't need any other churches in the world to exist for us to have church. We can have church. We can do what God wants for us as a church without any of them. It'd be fine. But it would be foolish with all of us existing not to come together and take advantages of the economy of scale. You know, when a missionary gets sent from a mission agency, they know all the rules in China. They know how all the insurance works. They know all the loops and jumps you got to go through in order to go over there. So when they send missionary after missionary after missionary, they're really, really good at it. 
And they get very good at it. If we try to send a missionary, it'd be like, okay, well, what, you know, who's research, who's researching this? I, I vote Rob. How about you guys, right? I mean. <laughs> but a mission agency does it all the time. So they're able to do it. And so, so when you talk about the value of churches coming together, we have to come together for certain things or we will never succeed in some of these big picture items. So I think it is really, really valuable. Even something as simple as our music, like a hymnal. Isn't it great that we didn't have to make up all our own music or make up all our own hymnal? I mean, maybe at Sunnyside we could write all of our own songs, I suppose. I mean, we probably could. We're, we're, we're a little lucky. We, we might be able to write our own songs. But isn't it great that we're able to come together and share the songs that we write so we don't have to make up every single one? So I want to encourage you. And Sometimes we get this temptation to be kind of overly isolationist, right? We want to be just ourselves. And I think there's value. I'm not saying we, we should, you know, become the Catholic Church or anything like that. But what I am saying is we cannot forget the value of coming together as a larger organization. You know, when, when the church needed help and they were, the, the church in Jerusalem was going to starve, if they didn't get outside help, you know what was going to happen? They were going to starve. They were going to starve. And if the big church didn't come together to help them, it wasn't going to happen. So I just encourage us to always not grow weary of saying, why do we ever come together to these larger organizations? Why do we send our money to them? Why do we support them? It's because there are things you can do when a large group come together that you could never do at a small scale. If you ever question that, just think of a Microsoft Surface. Thousands and thousands of thousands of people work together to make that happen. They don't even have any idea what each other's doing. And now we can buy a $600 computer that's half an inch or a quarter of an inch wide. It's incredible. And we as a church need to not lose the fact that we need to take advantage of that as well and coming together in a large group. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much. We just pray as we think about the advantage that we see here that the church and the church in the New Testament, specifically Antioch, and, and those churches that sent help to, to Jerusalem and the way that they took care of each other, Lord, I just pray that we would think of the big picture as well. I just pray that we would not think of ourselves only as by ourselves alone. We never, we're never a part of one another. We never help with one another, Lord. Lord, just the things we cannot do alone. Lord, we just thank you so much for your many blessings. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.